certainly been my joy to be here today, and I'm very grateful to you elders and um, whoever else had a role in this. I appreciate not only your shepherds, but your two preachers, and certainly find this congregation and have for years to be a delightful group of people. May God bless all of you and keep you as you strive to be faithful to Him. AP started in 1979. The material that I'm presenting tonight is available there uh, and some in the back. This is a DVD that deals with things like hand clapping, uh, raising arms in worship, some of the things that have been going on uh, both outside the church and in, praise teams, that kind of thing. And uh, there's a little booklet back there, I think it's $2, called Surrendering to His Lordship, which deals with the authority principles that are vital. And by the way, you can go to our website and download that free. So. Uh, when you see some of this material, if you want it, be sure and go there and, and use this. It's valuable for teaching, uh, even now, people in the church. This whole authority question and how to worship God uh, has, has moved into a phase of confusion. That's where we are. All right, this is the topic assigned to me. First of all, uh, let's get a clear definition of worship. If somebody were to ask you to take out a piece of paper, write down, what is worship? Uh, this would be a stab at it. Ascribing or expressing worth, value, veneration, homage, honor, adoration, devotion, or reverence to God. There's worship. Notice that um, worship, by definition, involves the worshiper expressing his or her adoration through specific actions. All religions share that in common. They have specific actions, like the Hindus tinkle bells. So the question is, what specific actions are acceptable in worshiping God? He would have to tell us, would he not? Although there are many people that obviously believe, no, you know, uh, whatever you choose to do, if it's sincere and you really mean it, God will accept it. But that's not the God of the Bible, never has been. He has always expected certain very specific Actions. What types of worship have, have we seen uh, throughout human history? All of these are explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Only the last two are acceptable to God. Spiritual worship or what Jesus called true worship. Notice further that um, the New Testament is very specific about this. You know, again, the, you might think the Bible's hard to understand. Most people probably think it is, but it's really not. Not on the things that uh, we have to know. And if you pour over the New Testament, you know, if you were a Jew and poured over the law of Moses, would you know how to worship God? Sure, he, he tells them how to do it. But what about the New Testament? Can you just not read the New Testament and see how was a person supposed to worship God? Our brethren have been right through the centuries. There are five specific avenues of worship, specific actions that the Bible stipulates is the way to express your worship to God. And you're familiar with all of these. You know, 1 Timothy 4.13 uses a term that refers to public reading of the Scriptures. We just did that, did we not? That's part of our worship. Everything that we do in our worship assembly that's intended to be worship, we have found to be in Scripture. And if somebody could show us where we're doing something that is not worship, that God does not authorize, then we certainly would not do it. Is that not the attitude that God expects of everybody? Now, here's the passage that was read to us. You know, 
Uh, when Jesus was on earth, he did not personally teach on everything that needed to be taught on. Remember, Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 7, in talking about the matter of marriage and divorce and some of that, uh, he said, now, Jesus said this, not I, and then he stated it. And then he said, now, Jesus didn't say this, I'm saying. He meant by that, while Jesus was on earth, he didn't address this specifically, but I am now. And, of course, everything that Paul taught was Jesus' word. So notice, if you have an inspired speaker, an inspired writer in the New Testament that addresses worship, that's equivalent to Jesus addressing it. So when we say, let's see what Jesus taught about worship, did he explicitly refer to it? He did in his interaction with a Samaritan woman in John 4. But as you proceed through the New Testament, you find a great deal more about worship from his inspired emissaries. Well, that's his word too. That's his teaching as well. I want us to focus uh, on three terms in this passage in order to make sense of, what, uh, of the upshot of what Jesus was saying to us. Notice when he said, uh, even, even stated that the Father seeks such to worship him. God wants people to worship him. Now we learn from Acts 17 when Paul was on Mars Hill that it's not as though he needed anything from us. We don't make God better by worshiping him. But he no doubt wants people to express homage to him because it's the right thing to do. He's the eternal, majestic God of the universe. It's only appropriate that he and he alone be the recipient of appropriate worship. Well, notice then that it is clear from Scripture that there is a singular audience of worship, and it is God, it is deity, the Godhead. And only uh, God is to be worshipped. Notice we also learn from Jesus' own words that we must have the right attitude. He uses the term spirit. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit. What does that refer to? That's not the Holy Spirit. That's a reference, it's really not even the human spirit, it's a reference to what your spirit is to be doing, it is to be engaged. So no wonder then, uh, Paul indicated one feature of worship, singing, is to be done in your heart, with your mind. Remember the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So an attitude of, of gladness and happiness and joy and uh, Hebrews 12 says we are to serve and worship him with reverence and godly fear. All of those are referring to the attitude, the tone, the mindset with which we approach worship. And then, of course, Jesus said that the proper action is necessary too. See, right now, Christendom is tipped to the left, and some in the church are as well, and therefore they, they really want to emphasize worship in spirit as well they should but they're neglecting the worship in truth. And they feel like as long as people are sincere, that God's not going to be nitpicky about the details. But again, you cannot read your Bible from beginning to end and come to that conclusion. You just can't do it. God has always been concerned about people worshiping Him the way He wants them to worship Him, and He has always informed them so that they're not left in the dark about how to do it. And really, it's a test to see whether or not we love him enough to do what he says to do. So the phrase in truth, worshiping God in truth, refers to the instructions that God stipulates, always has, that must be performed in proper worship. And so we must follow the directives that God has given us. And then our, our hearts, our minds must be engaged as we do that. 
That's worship in spirit. Do you know this uh, principle is taught over and over and over in the Bible from beginning to end? See what I mean by repetitive? I mean, even in the Old Testament, God stated things over and over and over that then in the New Testament we are to do. Notice these columns that I've stipulated here. Let's go back to the Old Testament first, where uh, Moses stood before the nation and, and said, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? There, you know, I don't know anything in this passage that wouldn't apply today. What does God require of us? To fear the Lord your God. I've color-coded these to show you the column that they fit in. To walk in all his ways. Those are very specific actions that you are to comply with. To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. And then notice keeping the commandments fits under truth as well. That's Deuteronomy chapter 10. You remember when Joshua, near the end of his life, stood before the nation and delivered that tremendous farewell address? You know, the choose you this day sermon. And among other things he said, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity, and in truth. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said when he said those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, in sincerity and in truth? State, he's saying exactly the same thing that Joshua said, what, 2,000 years earlier, 1,500 years earlier. Second Kings 10, uh, Jehu did wrong. Why? Because he took no heed to walk in the law, to do what the law told him to do, to do exactly what God said to do. And uh, he failed to do it, of course, with all of his heart. First Chronicles 13 and chapter 15. David and all Israel, you remember when they were trying to move the ark? They did it with all their might. That's good. But what they were doing was wrong. It was not according to chapter 15, verse 13, it was not according to the due order, the prescribed way. God didn't find fault with their exuberance and their passion and their joy. But that's, not, that's necessary. But that's not sufficient. It never has been. You also must conform to God's stipulation. Second Chronicles 31, in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all of his heart. You know what the outcome of that is? When you do exactly what God wants you to do and you do it with a good attitude, you prosper. You prosper. That's a good thing. That's success, spiritual success, especially in worship. Now, you're familiar with the Solomon's statement in Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep his commandments. Have the right attitude of reverence and fear and respect and awe, and yet conform yourself to his specifications. Moving to the New Testament, Acts chapter 10, remember Peter said when he was amazed that uh, God would accept these non-Jews. Of the truth I perceive that God has no respect of persons, but in every nation, whoever will fear him, whoever has this internal dimension of wanting to please God and respect him, and... He conforms to the actions, the works, the right works that God wants. God will accept him. God will accept him. Romans chapter 1. Paul said that he served God. How? With his spirit, his mind engaged, his whole heart in the gospel, according to the specifications found in Scripture. See how this is stated over and over? What about uh, James chapter 2? Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. You have to have that internal dimension of belief and desire to do what God wants you to do, yes. But if it doesn't act according to his specifications, then it is ineffectual. First John 3, uh, my little children, let us not love in word or tongue. He's not telling us, don't ever say anything out of your mouth that says love. He, that's a figure of speech. He means don't merely love 
only orally. Is that necessary? Yes. But then you need to do it in truth. You need to follow through and do the things that, according to the Bible, are actually loving. I, should, I meant to make copies of this and put them at the back and let you pick those up. But uh, maybe I can make it available if you're interested. And if you find other passages, like I said, it's all over the place in the Bible. This kind of two-dimensional aspect of following God. Well, that brings us then to the principle of authority. How do we decide what Jesus wants us to do in worship? How do we decide that? Is everyone just kind of left up to their own devices? You kind of get that idea when you look around at Christendom and see all the things that are going on. There are groups that will take, you know, pass out police whistles, pass them around, everybody blows those during the assembly, I guess when the Spirit moves them or something. All kinds of things like that. People getting up and running around the auditorium. When humans are left to this, you can expect all kinds of things. You know, I read in the Gospel Advocate back around 1900, it was simply reporting an action that took place in a church. They had gotten a big cage of canaries, and at an auspicious moment when the speaker was speaking, they released those canaries, and they flew up and flew out of the building, and everybody was just so impressed. You know, if we're just going to sit around and try to think of neat things to do that that uh, impress us, that make us feel exhilarated. Do you see there's no end to it? And people justify that by saying, well, well, God, God is pleased with me because I'm trying to think of ways to express myself to Him. Well, they need to go back and reacquaint themselves with the God of the Bible. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. You and I don't know how to worship God. We don't know how to live life. When we're left to our own, we make a mess of it. We have got to go to God, bow before Him and say, what would you have me to do? I don't have an agenda here. I just want to do what you want me to do. Now, if people had that attitude, we would not have churches of Christ with praise teams, instrumental music, hand clapping, and on and on it goes. All of those came out of the mind of men. We must determine God's wishes on any given action. So, we must approach the Bible with a constant question, Lord, what would you have me to do? What does God want you and me to do in worship? That's not uh, that hard a question uh, to answer. Does he, you know, let's just ask the question, would God be pleased, does he want us uh, to use any kind of music? You know, Islam really doesn't. When they meet in their mosques, they don't have singing like we do. Why do we sing? Why do we do what we do? It, it's always amazing to me that if you go to the, the brethren that are trying to introduce all these things and you ask them, why do you partake of the Lord's Supper? Because the Bible says so. Okay. Why do you pray? Do you all have prayer in your assemblies? Yeah. Why do you do that? Where would you get that? It says in the Bible. Well, do you uh, sing? Yeah. Why? Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. We're, we're told to do that. Do you uh, pick up a collection, contribute on the first day of the week? Why? Where'd you get that idea? First Corinthians 16, it comes out of God. Why do you have praise to you? Well, you know, we, we feel like it's... They don't say because the Bible tells us. What's so hard about that? And they have this, you know, um, 
convoluted way that they try to justify all these additions that they want to do, but they don't simply say, because the Bible tells us this is what Jesus wants us to do. Does he want us to clap our hands? Does he want us to raise our arms up and maybe sway them? Does he want to praise them? You know, you, you go back to the very beginning of human history and notice God has always given worship prescriptions to human beings. He's always done that. He's told people how to worship. The uh, first indication of that we have is second generation. It, it's a Cain and Abel. Well, those boys left without any instructions. They were just kind of out there, well, I think today I'm going to do this for God. And the other one said, well, no, I'm going to do this. No, the Bible indicates they had been given directions from God. And one conformed completely and one did not. It's really that simple. And we have no right as human beings to formulate our own ideas concerning religious truth. We must have God's approval for everything we do. That's stated, you know, over and over and over in our Bible. Colossians 3.17 is a passage we use often because of that phrase, in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, in word or deed, see that covers everything, do it in the name of the Lord. And you're aware of the fact you've been studying, told over and over this means by the authority. How do we know that? Is that just because that's what old preachers used to tell us? No, because that's how the Bible uses it. Remember in Acts chapter 4? By what power... You know that's the word in, in the original language that is also translated authority. It's the same concept. By what power or by what name have you done this? See, they're asking the same thing twice. So authority, power, and name are all referring to the same thing. So to say something's done in the name of Christ is equivalent to saying it is done with the authority of Christ, with the permission of Christ with the sanction of Christ, with the approval of Christ, with the backing and authorization. You have the right to do it because God has given you that right. See, this is a lost concept in our society today. Now it just is. Previous generations understood it much better. But the baby boomer generation, we came along and rebelled against authority. Isn't that what we did? We don't feel like we have to have authority. We just do our, remember the expression, do our own thing. You know, that's a rebellion against the concept of authority and functioning in harmony with specifications. In Acts chapter 4, you remember the details of this, where they, they say, we want you to understand that when we came out here and healed this fellow, we weren't just doing this because we just decided to do it. We woke up today and said, who are we going to heal today? Are we going to heal somebody today? Who? No. The apostles were saying that it was by the authority of Christ that this man stands here before you whole. Jesus authorized us to heal this fellow for a very specific purpose. You realize the apostles never went around and talked or said things that were not previously approved by God. If they did so, they were called on the carpet about it, like Peter. That was his actions. But they, they understood that we can only do what God tells us to do, what he approves of us doing. And that's all that we can teach. So, when they said there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, they were referring to that principle. If you want to be saved, the only way you can be saved is by Christ's permission based upon the stipulations he has given you to accomplish that in your life. That's it. 
and there are no exceptions, and there are no other alternatives, no other avenues to God. He is the one and only authority to whom we must submit. Notice how all-inclusive this passage is. Whatever, word and deed, do all. You see that this passage is telling us that uh, this principle of authority permeates all of life, really. Not even just religion. It's all of life. You have authority from God to uh, consume food. Because if you don't, you better not be doing it. Do you see that? Well, yeah, the Bible teaches God created our bodies in such a way they have to take in nourishment. That's an authorized activity. What about breathing? Yeah. What about uh, wearing clothing? Is that authorized by God? Absolutely. In fact, God goes into detail about some specifications there about inappropriate dress, immodest dress versus appropriate dress. See how God governs our lives, really every facet of our lives. And it's our responsibility to take these principles and apply them accurately so that we know that we are acting in harmony with his will, that he approves of what we are doing. When we say, you know, that expression, you, 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 Jesus should be the Lord of your life 24-7, what does that mean? Well, it means I'm going to submit my life to him in such a way that what I say and what I do has his prior approval. And I will refrain from engaging in those things that he has not given me permission to do. You think about that. This is an all-encompassing, all-pervasive principle of life. You remember when Moses stood before... Uh, Pharaoh, and then came back to God and complained and said, you know, ever since I, I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, what did he mean by that? He meant to speak by your authority, to say the things that you wanted me to say to him. Moses didn't go down there and make his own speech. He conveyed God's thinking to that Pharaoh, to that uh, pagan monarch. And when Peter healed the lame man in Acts chapter 3, he said, it is in Christ's name that this man has been made strong, by Christ's authority, by Christ's doing and Christ's permission. Whenever Paul in Acts 16 said, I command you to the demon in the name of Jesus Christ, Christ is authorizing me to require you to exit her body. Paul had no right to do that just on a whim, on his own. He only was to conduct himself in harmony with his will. All of our conduct must be conformed to the directives of Jesus Everything we say and do must have the prior approval and sanction of God. To speak or act in Jesus' name is to speak or act not merely to his honor. I'm sure it does that. But that's not the meaning of the statement. The statement means we must do so under his sanction and with his approval. So, when you go through your Old Testament and see all these individuals that were disapproved by God, why? Why were they? What was Cain's problem? Well, he did not conduct himself by the authority of God. He, he stepped out and did things, either in attitude or action, specifically we're told in action, that uh, were not authorized by God. And that was the case with King Uzziah and Uzzah when he touched the ark and they'd have an abihu. And notice that all of these people were believers. These weren't pagans. They weren't worshiping Dagon or Molech. They were believers, worshiping the one true God. And they were engaging in religious actions. All right, come on. You're worshiping. 
the one true God, why wouldn't God accept you? Isn't that what's taking place all over this city today and all over the United States and all over the world, perhaps? People worshiping the right God. And they're religious. Isn't that sufficient? Most of Christendom would say that's sufficient. That's never been sufficient. You have to worship the one true God in accordance with his will, with his directives. All of these individuals and a host of others were condemned for the simple reason they were doing things that were not authorized. Now notice this principle is articulated over and over in the New Testament. Look at this statement. Don't even think beyond what is written. That's a good summary of this concept, this principle. Don't even think beyond what God wants you to think in terms of his will for you. Whatever we do in religion first must be found in the scriptures. So question, you know, uh, let's say you want to uh, observe uh, the birth of Christ as a religious holiday. I, I personally think it's okay for you to have a tree and gifts, though, but let's turn it into a religious holiday, you know, maybe put Christmas trees up here in the front of the building and celebrate the birth of Jesus. What could possibly be wrong with that? Most churches do it. Many in the church do it now. Well, come back to the principle. Do you have to have Christ's approval for everything you do? Yes or no? All right, so you go to the New Testament and ask the question, God, is there any moment, any day, any event in the life of Christ that you want us to set aside and observe in any sort of a special way? Because, you see, if we don't have that, we shouldn't be doing it. Well, guess what? He said, yeah, I want you to observe the death of Christ. And here's how to do it, and here's the day to do it on. Okay, but we want to celebrate the birth of Christ too. So we're going to set aside a day, and we're going to do this, this, this. Do you not see that if God wanted us to do that, he'd have said so? How dare humans presume to step in there and create a, a religious observance about s some feature of the life of Christ. You know, if we're going to do that, let's just do a lot of things. What about when he was there in the temple at 12 years old? Let's have a 12-year-old temple day. And so we'll have all the little boys and girls come up in front of the auditorium, and we'll give them maybe a little scroll to help emphasize to them that Jesus at the age of 12 was very focused. And, you know, Tony can preach a special sermon on that from that text in Luke chapter 2. I hate to mention these things. It'll be on a tape. It'll get out to some church. Next thing you know, they'll be doing it. Because you see, that's human innovation. That's human thinking. Instead of having the attitude, God, Jesus means all the world to us. We're so enthralled by all the events in his life that you've reported to us. But if you want us to do anything with regard to observing any moment in the life of Christ, you're going to have to tell us. And he did. Now, are you going to not think beyond what is written or not? That's how simple this principle is in Scripture. 2 John 9, if you do not uh, stick with Scripture, if you go ahead and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, you know that goes ahead as proago, um, to progress. Isn't it interesting that the liberal element, both politics and religion, describe themselves as progressives? They're transparent about who they are and what they're doing. But the Bible explicitly says, don't do that. If you don't stay right within the parameters of the stipulations of the doctrine of Christ, 
you don't have God. That's not me saying that. It's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 4, if you're going to speak, it better be the oracles of God. You have no right to go beyond that. And we mentioned this morning, Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus said in response to their questions, by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? They understood the, the authority principle. And then Jesus proceeded to make it clear that everything that is done needs to be done either from heaven or men. That's every, everything that people do is one or the other, is it not? So do you see you could take a piece of paper, draw a line down the center, put from heaven from men there, and sort this question out real quick? Real quick. Um, how about uh, sprinkling? You, know, you have a baptistry up here. You immerse. Well, what would be wrong with just sprinkling, sprinkling a little water, maybe on a baby's head? What would be wrong with that? Well, you ask yourself the question, is that from heaven or men? Bible's real clear. That is from men. That doesn't come from heaven. Well, then why do you people immerse? Well, you know, Church Christ just decided one day way back there some Church Christ guys decided to start doing it. No, that's the term that's used in the scriptures over and over. That's the meaning of the word baptizo, baptisma. And it's even described in Romans 6 and Colossians 2 as a burial. You can't miss this. You don't have to know Greek to know this. That comes right from the mind of God. What about just the whole concept of denominations, designated divisions? Where'd that come from? Did that come from God? Of course it didn't. But what came from him along that line? A one singular New Testament church. In fact, Jesus said, it's my church, I'm building it. You know, the implication there is how dare any human build theirs. That comes right from God. See, from heaven. Just do this on any numbers of things. Instruments, we know exactly where that came from. We're not talking about Old Testament worship. Singing, we have explicit statements telling us that's what God wants us to do. Why don't we partake of the Lord's Supper and observe it on Friday or Thursday or Saturday? It's happening in our brotherhood. Well, because when you search everything the New Testament says on that subject, it is apparent the New Testament church, under the direction of the apostles, partook of the Lord's Supper every Sunday and only on Sunday. That's what the New Testament teaches on the matter. All right, let me give you just one or two quick secular illustrations to show you that we live by this principle every day. It's only in religion that people deviate from rationality. Let's say you go into a restaurant and you see a door that says authorized personnel only. You understand, everybody understands the principle of authority so clearly that they know whether or not they have the right to go through that door. There's no, nothing on that sign that says, you know, don't you come in here, Fred. Nothing like that. Authorized per personnel only. See, we understand the principle of authority. Let's say you see another door that has simply the generic term restrooms, or not even a term, just two stick figures. By the way, this is being blurred quite a bit these days, but the principle is still the same. We understand the principle of authority so well that we know we have the right to go through that door. Everybody does. But you go through that door and see two additional doors with no words, just pictures, and you immediately know what you're authorized to do. That's the principle of authority. What if your doctor, you go to the doctor and he or she writes you a prescription and you take it to the pharmacy and you hand it to the pharmacist and uh, the prescription is for antibiotics and let's suppose that, the, uh, suppose that the pharmacist gives you 
uh, the antibiotic, but you get to looking on the label and see that he or she has also put a little bit of strychnine in that antibiotic. What would you do about that? Would you not demand an explanation? What if the pharmacist said, well, the doctor did not say that I was not to give you strychnine. Here, here's the prescription. Show me where it says I'm not supposed to do that. What would you say? Oh, okay, you're right. Give me the strychnine. I interpreted his silence to be permissive. This is exactly what people say about instrumental music. The New Testament's silent on it, which is a big admission. So we take that to be, we can do it. It doesn't say not to do it. That's bizarre. People do not operate that way in life. Look at this statement carefully. The doctor's command neither prescribes nor prohibits poison. This is exactly the statement that was made in Rick Ashley's sermon back in 2006 justifying the introduction of instruments into their church in Fort Worth. The New Testament's command to sing neither prescribes nor prohibits using an instrument. And he just thought, you know, I could, you know, 3,000 people there, they're like, Okay, so you go to your, your pharmacist, and they put poison in there and say, well, you know, the doctor's prescription neither prescribed nor prohibited poison, and you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah. People lose their sense when it comes to religious matters. Okay, you go to your favorite fast food restaurant. You expect them to conform to your specification. You go up through the drive-thru, and you expect them to not add to the word that you give them, or take away from it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. What about uh, Deuteronomy 5? Be careful to do as the Lord your God commanded you. Don't turn aside to the right or the left. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. Don't take away, don't add to it. What about Proverbs chapter 6? Don't add to God's words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. There's a lot of lying going on in religion in the name of God. So... You pull up to the window. The cashier says that will be $435.87. and starts handing you bags of everything on the menu. Would you not stop them and say, wait a minute, <laughs> I didn't order all that stuff. Well, what if the person, in, uh, the person at the window says, well, you did not order, you know, sandwich combo number one only. That preacher said, the New Testament doesn't say sing only. You did not forbid us to give you additional food. You know, if this happens to you when you go through a fast food drive-in, you're going to think that person's either joking or they're crazy. What other options are there? Restaurant workers receive authority from you based on what you say to them, not on what you do not say. You do not give them authority for your actions by your silence. You give them authority by the words, the instructions that you give to. This is the way we operate every day in life. But whenever we come to God, we can't seem to think through, well, we can. It's just that we do not want to. We have an agenda. The prohibition on uh, instruments is not because singing excludes it. We sing because the Bible tells us to do that. The reason we do not play instruments is because the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Now, folks, that is so simple, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches. There should be some free copies of this book back there that is a critique of the Richland Hills uh, 
a group on that matter. Uh, Piloting with Strafe deals with a lot of this kind of thing. And all of this is available at our website if you would like to uh, have access to this information. And I know that Tony's preached on these things and you all have been exposed to this material many times. But I tell you, we have a lot of young people and they're constantly being assailed by all kinds of cockeyed thinking in this world around us. We've got to keep going back and making clear to them what the Bible teaches on such matters. Doesn't it give you security and encouragement to know that you can go through life having a clear spiritual framework that's unchanging, that you can know, you can be certain about, and be able then to gauge all of life looking through that perspective. That's how God intended it to be. And we can be happy and contented and know what our life is about and where the limits are, where the boundaries are. You know, they say that children are very unhappy if they're not given restrictions and boundaries and limits. But that's kind of the, the attitude of our crazy society right now. Do whatever you want to do. And how dare anybody say that? You want to go into that bathroom or that bathroom? How dare anybody question it? Well, with all the kindness I can muster, that's mental illness. That's not reality. Now, if there's no God, then I suppose I shouldn't question you. If you think, you know what, I, I really, I know what my body looks like and genetically, but I think I'm a tree. And I think that I should be permitted, you know, to go to lumberjack conventions and be a tree and blah, blah, blah. Well, if there is no God... I suppose we ought to be open-minded about all that. We may question the person about their sanity, but hey, who are we to judge? But if there is a God, and the Bible is his word, then we are able to make an assessment of that without any unkindness intended. We're able to assess the situation. And we would assess such an individual, again, if they're not just kidding around, that they have some emotional, mental problems, and if we love them and are kind and gracious, we will help them. They need some counseling. They need some assistance to do what God wants everybody on the planet to do. Get your mind right. Get your thinking straight. And you've got to look to the majestic creator of the universe to do that. There is no other source to look to. People in America now are looking everywhere except the one true source by which they can achieve contentment, happiness, satisfaction in life, and have an eternal abode that will be one of bliss. If you're not a New Testament Christian, will you make the decision tonight to become one or at least to decide that you're going to study what you need to do to become a Christian? There are those here who will study with you. But again, God's prescriptions on mandatory things is simple. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. We've been right about that all along. That's what the New Testament teaches on the matter. And then as Christians, we've got to live faithful. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We may even do things that need to be brought before the church. You have an opportunity to correct that. Thank you for your kind attention. If you need to respond to the invitation, let's sing it now together as we stand.